You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Welcome to Salem. Um, we're preaching, we're preaching on Acts 10, 1 through 35. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. I'm going to give you a chance to find that. Please stand as you're able for the reading of the word. At Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Devout man who feared God and all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have been ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of the servants and the devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having re- related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open. It was something like a great sheet descending, being let down all its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there a voice came to him, said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was innerly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house through the gate, and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in all to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called them together, his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And he ta- as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. 
And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should, call, should not call my, any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without an objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days about this hour, I was praying at my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we're looking at the uh, book of Acts, which is sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles, but as I keep saying, uh, should be called the Acts of the Ascended Lord, because it is a book about how um, Jesus uh, rose from the grave. He defeated death after he was crucified, but he not only rose from the grave, he ascended into the invisible realm, which is a part of the gospel we don't think about as much as we should, but um, he walked the earth for 40 days after his resurrection, and then he was taken up. And he entered into the unseen realm, um, and from that realm, uh, he rules today, which I've compared to the upside down and Stranger Things, where it's this, the same reality, but it's just, uh, it's like the flip side of that. And from that realm that it, we can't see, but it's right here, he is ruling the world. Uh, and that's the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, uh, what he does primarily is he pours out his spirit on the church. The church is the center of his plan for the entire world. To redeem the world. And he creates these communities, uh, these churches, where he kind of animates them. And they live um, under his rule and his reign. And we witness to the kind of reign that he has. His unique form of politics and his way of ruling people and loving people. And uh, the spirit uh, kind of creates new life. Uh, it's kind of like a biogenesis when, uh, you know, the spark, the lightning hit, you know, 3.5 billion years ago on planet Earth. And the spontaneous generation of life out of inorganic matter. Um, that's the way scientists say that life came about on the earth. Well, in the same way, the Holy Spirit kind of like, it's a lightning strike. And it creates all of a sudden uh, eternal life, these communities of eternal life. Um, and it started in Jerusalem. The lightning first struck in Jerusalem. And then it moved outside of Judea and it went into Samaria. So if you know your geography, uh, Jerusalem is at the center of Judea, of Israel. And then it, it progresses out. It, it kind of ripples out. Uh, and then it goes to Samaria, which is just outside of Judea. Uh, they're kind of considered half-breeds, you know, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. So we've seen it go to Samaria in chapters uh, 7, 8, and 9. And now, for the first time, you're entering Roman territory. This is like full Gentile territory. Caesarea. I mean, the name is Caesarea. That's Caesar's land. It's the stronghold of Caesar in Judea, and it is right in the middle of Caesarea, uh, right in Caesar's stronghold, that the real king, the king who's over Emperor Nero, uh, that's where the lightning strikes, and it's this world-changing meal at a table, a world-changing meal where he brings together Jew and Gentile. And for the first time ever, you know, since he created the Jewish people, 
2,000 years earlier with Abraham, for the first time ever, you have a church that is a mixture of Jewish and Gentile. It's not just Jewish. And now it's become something that was once a Messianic sect is now this uh, international multi-ethnic institution, uh, which is still the most diverse institution by far in the history of planet Earth. And it's been going on for 2,000 years since that time. For 2,000 years, God used food laws to create a distinct people. He closed the tables of the Jewish people and said, you cannot eat with Gentiles. You can only eat these foods. Can't eat pork, can't eat shrimp. Um, You can only eat these foods. And that way they would remain distinct and they would not be melded into the Gentiles because God needed a distinct group of people to witness to him. So that's what the Jewish people were. They distinctly witnessed to the reign of God, uh, which was a a reign of grace. Uh, But now that the spirit has come, we don't need those food laws anymore. Because now the spirit has come. The common meal between Jew and Gentile is not a danger to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. Because they're the ones who are now susceptible to the power of the Holy Spirit. So when Jew and Gentile come together after the Holy Spirit has come, it is the Gentile that will be affected more than the believer. And so that's what happens for the first time in this passage. This is a really big deal. The story of Cornelius in um, Acts chapter 10. So I want to look at two things. First of all, just the way the Spirit creates this family. Like I said, it's like this uh, invisible realm, this lightning strike that out of uh, nothing comes this new family of Jew and Gentile. That's the first thing. The Spirit created non-biological family, which is what the church is. We are the only non-biological family on earth. It's a family of tables. That's why we are centered on a table. Because we are a family that is centered around tables. And these are now open tables. Because, like I said, the food laws are gone. Uh, It's also a family that has no favoritism. Um, All are equally acceptable to God. He shows no partiality. There's no favoritism. It's not a Roman hierarchy. Uh, The Roman Empire was extremely stratified. It was like a caste system. And... Again, right in Caesar's household, God says, no more favoritism. Absolutely no hierarchies in the kingdom. No, uh, all are equally acceptable. So those two things, the spirit family and then no partiality. So, verse 1, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. He, he, God chose a centurion to do this. That's significant. He could have chosen any Gentile. He chose a Roman centurion. Now, these, these guys were the backbone of Roman merciless discipline. The, if, if the Romans were known for anything, they were a law and order government. I mean, more than any in the history of the world. Uh, they carried out the law. And this, these centurions were the ones that were the enforcers of the law. You know, the merciless Roman law. It was just, but it, it did not include mercy. And this centurion was full of mercy. There's a paradox right there. Uh, It says in verse 2, he gave alms generously to people. And he prayed continually. And, um, you know, generosity was kind of the hallmark of what it meant for the Jewish people to really practice Judaism. Giving alms, being generous, uh, helping the poor, those in great need. That was almost synonymous for them with fearing God and having devotion. That's why it says in verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household. So he and his whole household, they had not converted to Judaism. They were not circumcised. They did not keep the the kosher food laws, but they did fear God. They were called proselytes. 
So here's this Roman centurion, incredibly generous man, which is obviously a call to us who now have the Holy Spirit fully in a way that he did not to be generous. I mean, if he's that generous, we are certainly called to generosity. And his very devotion is what led to his generosity. He was a devout man. But it's interesting, uh, we can see that he prayed at regular intervals through the day, which again, that's, you know, that puts us to shame. I mean, how many of us pray at regular intervals? But this guy prayed at the ninth hour. Every ninth hour, he would stop and pray. Um, they would pray the third, sixth, ninth hour. So the ninth hour, he's, in, he's down on his knees, maybe on his carpet, as somebody who, who worships the God of Israel, but is not Jewish. And at the ninth hour, he's praying, and all of a sudden, comes through the portal, you know, from the unseen realm, from the upside down, there comes this uh, messenger of God. I don't even like to use the word angel because we don't know what these things are. They're not made of, um, of matter. They're, they're not made of organic matter, but they can talk, they think, they carry messages. And uh, Cornelius has clearly never seen one because it says he was terrified. In verse four, he says, Cornelius, and it says he stared at him in terror. Like, you, you're real? You know, you're actually out there and you know my name? C.S. Lewis says, like, prayer is sometimes like we're holding a cord and God's on the other end. And when it actually gets tugged, it's like a fish. You're shocked there's actually anyone out there on the other end. And that's like Cornelius does not realize I'm actually talking to someone. And now it's like, it's like I've got a marlin on the other end. This angel comes in and he knows Cornelius' name. Cornelius has never been allowed in the temple. He's never been allowed in the synagogue. He's never been in a Jewish home. He's never had a meal with a Jewish person. And surely he's thinking of himself as a very second-class citizen in the Jewish world. And yet, heaven knows his name. He's not at all second-class. Cornelius, he says. And then you see, the, um, you see the subjugation of Caesar to Jesus because Caesar loved to be called Lord. You know, Caesar is Lord. That was kind of the, the slogan, um, almost like Heil Hitler. It was Caesar is Lord. You know, all, and you would, you would do the same kind of symbol to Caesar that the Nazis would do. But Cornelius says to the angel, which is the messenger of Yahweh, what is it, Lord? In other words, you are my Lord, not Caesar. I'm not bowing to Caesar, I'm bowing to you. And the king gives one instruction through this angel, this messenger, and Rome's um, enforcers just completely bend down. You know, the backbone of Rome just bends down. One instruction, verse five, the angel says, bring back Peter, a man called Simon Peter. And I'll give you one hint. He's in Joppa and he's staying with a guy who lives by the sea who's a tanner, who's also named Simon. So there's one little order and then immediately Cornelius sends three soldiers, you know, 20 miles down the Via Maria from Caesarea to Joppa. So again, you see... Uh, the lordship of Christ. As he's creating this family, you see the spirit uh, moving these parts around. He's moving Cornelius to send his three men down to Joppa. We saw that Peter got to Joppa last week because he went to raise Dorcas from the dead. He was in Lydda. The spirit got him to Joppa. Now the spirit tells Cornelius in Caesarea, send your men down to Joppa and Peter will be there. In the meantime... Just as the heavens were opening to Cornelius, they are also opening to Peter, the leader of the church, Jewish. And he is showing Peter a bigger vision of family than Peter's ever seen before. 
So it says in verse 9, Peter is on his housetop at the sixth hour praying. So it's a little bit later, maybe the next day. Peter is at the sixth hour praying. It's like a coordinated attack. One goes to Caesarea, the other angel goes to Joppa. And I think this is humorous that Peter is so hungry that he can't concentrate. Have you ever been, I mean, have you ever tried to pray or read the Bible and you just can't concentrate so you go get something to eat? So Peter is too hungry to concentrate and he keeps thinking about food. So he has his servants cook him some food while he's up there on the rooftop. And while his food is cooking, he can probably smell the food. And God is now working with, this is really, food is a really big deal to God here. And the, the way we eat is, a, is, a, is very important. As soon as uh, the food starts cooking, suddenly Peter goes into a trance and this huge picnic basket or maybe a huge dining room table or something. It's like a blanket of some kind. I just imagine, I imagine it's huge, like the size of this room coming down from heaven. And uh, I like to think of it as almost like a banquet table with all of these sumptuous dishes on it. And they're all the things that Peter's always wanted to eat but couldn't eat. I mean, he's always smelled the pork, um, but he could never eat it. All these delicious meats um, are coming down um, from heaven on this huge banquet table. And um, the, the messenger says in verse 13, Peter, get up. You can have any of this stuff for lunch. You can have, this, this is now completely open to you. And this is so shocking to Peter. He's so startled by this message that, uh, that you can actually eat these foods because he's trained his whole life not to do this. That's how Israel kept distinct from Rome. That God has to do it three times. So the, the table goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And even after three times, it says in verse 17, he's still puzzled. And he says, can it be that I can eat with the Gentiles now? And this is how deeply ingrained this distinction between Jew and Gentile was, well, while he is pondering this whole situation about the food, uh, meanwhile, you know, if you were, if you were like looking from above, like a, from a crow's, you know, point of view, looking down, you're seeing Peter up here wondering and having this vision over here. And meanwhile, the three Roman soldiers are getting to his house right at the same time. They're arriving at the gate. And while they're calling out for his name, he's hearing from the angel, go downstairs. And right when they're about to knock on the door, the door flies open. So it's like, again, God is coordinating all these things. He's, it's like synchronicity. All these things are synced together. And Peter uh, is terrified. Because here you have three soldiers of the occupation you know, at your door. And you know that you're in somewhat trouble because you're following this, this rebel Jesus you know, king. And so you know that Peter is, um, is frightened when he sees three Roman soldiers show up at a Jewish door... And um, they say, we're looking for a certain Simon Peter. And he's like, I'm Simon Peter. And then they say in verse 22, an angel in Caesarea told our master to go down to you. And then he says, funny, I was just talking to an angel also. And he told me to come down to see you. And neither know why this interaction's happening. They don't know why the spirits bring them together. But they're, but, but they're like, okay, something is happening here. Like the sparks are flying from heaven. And I think it's dawning on Peter, I think the Spirit is doing something right now that's brand new. This never happened before. In salvation history, this has never happened. So this is a big first step. Peter invites them into his house. And they're probably shocked by this, to be invited into a Jewish house. In verse 23, he invited them in to be his guests overnight. 
Now that's a big deal. You have the same sheets. They're sleeping on the same sheets as the Gentiles, the Jews and the Gentiles. You have these three Roman soldiers inside of a Jewish house, which I'm sure was really hard for Peter. But an even bigger deal is that Peter and his friends in the church down in Joppa. So this is like, this is the spiritual family of God. They are going now to Caesarea with the three Roman soldiers and they come to Cornelius' house. And not only do they let the Romans into their house, they go into the Roman house. And that would have even been more unclean. So now here's Peter and he didn't just come by himself. Notice he took his friends. So Peter and his friends march to Caesarea, enter Cornelius' house. And it's, it's such a sweet touch here that Cornelius is so excited when he sees Peter coming. I guess he got a messenger to run back to him like, yes, they're coming, they're coming. And Cornelius, you know, I can imagine him just furiously cleaning his house and uh, getting ready. He calls all of his friends and relatives over. Verse 24, Cornelius called together his relatives and his close friends and they're waiting for, they don't even know what's going to happen. They're just waiting for Peter to come in. Peter doesn't know what's going to happen exactly. But they're coming together They're in Cornelius' huge house, probably would have been about the size of this room, Roman household, and they were very much open. They were very open homes. And on this side, you have Peter and his people, the Jewish, you know, this is the church. And over here, you have Cornelius and his Roman soldiers and his family and his friends. And they're kind of awkward over here because they're not really comfortable with what's happening right now. And they're also really uncomfortable over here. And then um, Cornelius tells Peter what he heard. And then Peter tells Cornelius what he heard. And then Peter starts to preach in verse 44. And while Peter is preaching, uh, as they're hearing about how God accepts everyone and forgives everyone and everyone is equal in God's sight, it's like that's when the lightning strikes. That's when the primordial soup you know, becomes actual living matter. You have these organisms now. And it says in verse 45... They, they ran over, or I don't know, they ran to the middle and they, they hugged them and they said, we have all got the same spirit now. And we're all one non-biological family. We're completely equal. So this, that room in, in, in that house, probably an atrium outside, where they were mingling, and then they had a meal together. And, and that situation was going on right there was the first time you ever had the, the church in the truest sense of the word. These people that were meeting together in the same home, around the same table. And then I imagine they cooked like barbecue or something like that. So it was really clear that uh, this is a brand new thing. I mean, imagine being in that, in that setting. I mean, one thing it tells me is that your, your tables you know, are very important. Wherever you live, um, maybe you don't have a table if you're in a dorm room or something like that, but you can find a table somewhere. And the way you use your tables is so important in the kingdom of God. There was somebody from our small group that was commenting on our table in our dining room, and I was telling them, it's a very big round table, and I was telling them we actually bought the house to fit that table because we had the table already. And we kind of knew that we would, the church, we would kind of, when we were planting the church, we were like, we're going to build a church kind of around this table almost. Or this is going to be a model for other tables where we're going to have people around these tables, and that's where, that's where the churches start. That's where the families happen. And um, I think sometimes we think that, I mean, you might be here for the first time today and you're wondering if you should you know, continue to come to this church. We, we sometimes think that, we're, that when we pick church, it's like when you pick a basketball team, 
you know, if you're playing a pickup game and you're like, I'll take him, and then the other person takes them and you take him, and you know, you're picking your team, but that's not what, that's not what church is like at all. It's the spirit picks you to be on a team. You're the one picked. Because you came to Salem thinking I'm here because I like the people or I like the worship or I like the time of day. But you really didn't know what actually was going on here. I mean, when we make that decision, we just know so much less than we think we do about what actually is here. And so we're being drawn in by the Spirit. Um, the Spirit is the one that brings people here and brings us together. And that's why it's so important to follow the Spirit and welcome people. Especially you see people who are new and to say, you're so glad you're here. Um, you're entirely here on your own free will. You know, there's somebody else out there that is operating this invisible, uh, incredible mind, this beautiful mind of the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, loneliness, like I was saying in the prayer earlier, it's, it's the biggest problem right now in our country, I think. Um, as a health problem alone, much less a spiritual problem. But simply as a health problem, in 2013, um, people spent seven hours a week with, with their close friends. And now it's diminished in 10 years to about three I mean, imagine if that kept going down. That's a really steep decline. I mean, COVID is to blame. The uh, phones are to blame. But it's really, it's, it's, a, it's an epidemic. And we have the solution. The church is the only person in the world. She is the only person that has a solution to the loneliness problem. In 1993, 3% of men had almost no friends. Now it's 15%. That's, uh, that's, that's frightening. And women, it's up to 10%. And, yet, and we have these meals, you know, as Christians, where they're not affinity-based. I mean, it's okay to have meals with your friends also. But I love how we do dinners for eight. I mean, that's a great, that's a great image of the kingdom. You just get matched with uh, eight people around a table, and you're like, go. You just put, people are just put together in groups of eight, and they just have a meal together. And that's what, that's what the kingdom's like. These meals... Um, where there is no partiality, there are open homes, there are open tables. That's what creates the non-biological family that is the church. By the power of the Holy Spirit, striking down like lightning. So that's, that's the first thing. And I've already started talking about the second thing, which is there are no favorites. There is no hierarchy. You know, there are, there are no BFFs really in the church. I mean, it's okay to say that there are certain people I'm really, really close to, but just the idea of a best friend forever does not really align well with Christianity. Verse 33, Peter says, God shows no favoritism. All are equally acceptable to him. Now that's not an easy thing for Peter to say. He's been trained his entire life to think that there is favoritism, that God favors the Jews. So this is a lot of wrestling has gone into saying this, but now he's saying, now that I see the Spirit is doing this new thing, um, we are all equally acceptable. And obviously this, is, this contradicts something in our heart that's very deep because we, we think that some people are more acceptable than others. Absolutely. We think that some people are better to be with than others. We think they're people with similar political opinions or taste in food or music or movies that we'd rather be with. They're more acceptable. And so um, if there's someone who is like a, a strongly left-leaning and you're strongly right-leaning, they're not going to be as acceptable to you or vice versa. Um, we, to us, there are people more acceptable. Than, to God, that is not true. There is no ranking. There's no us versus them with God. There's no in-group or out-group or cool or lame in God's kingdom. 
There are no favorites. I I love how Cornelius thought in verse 25 that he was still in a Roman hierarchy. Because when he saw Peter, it says he fell down at his feet and worshiped him. And he's still living in Caesar's world. You know, his imagination is still a Roman imagination of this strict, you know, you have citizen, uh, plebeian, and slave. That's in the Roman hierarchy. And there's more than, there's even more stratified than that. But Peter's like, no, that's not going to happen here. So Peter gets down in verse 26 and he's like, Picking him up, stand up, brother. I'm just like you. I'm just like you. That Margie, my wife, has a T-shirt that says, uh, "We're all just humans trying our best," or something like that. Just a human trying my best, and that's a great. That's exactly what Peter's telling Cornelius here. We're all in the same boat. We're all just humans trying our best here. My uh, my grandmother, my dad's mom, who grew up in Buckhead in Atlanta, which is uh, really high end. I mean, if you're from Buckhead, you know that's the cream of the crop. Um, in Buckhead, um, I think she was taught somewhere along the line to call people common. And I couldn't even believe, now looking back, I can't believe she said this, but she would call people, oh, they're just common. So if, uh, if their kids were out of control at a restaurant or someone broke in line or if they were like revving their engine really loud, she would just say, oh, they're so common. And it was implying, of course, that she's special. And God sends this blanket down, you know, three times. And it says, what I made clean, do not call common. Verse 15. Stop calling anyone common. And you probably don't say the word common, but you probably think common. And God's like, no, no more common. I was one of uh, 20 cousins on that grandmother's side of the family. My, my dad's side of the family had five siblings. They each had a ton of children. So there were 20 of us. And we would go to Pauly's Island every year. And the more I lived, the more I realized how formative that was in my, my whole perception of the world. It was very much form- I was called Little Benjamin because there was a big Benjamin. He was shorter than me, but he was older. And I was definitely outside the cool group. I mean, it was very clear to me. And uh, there was a cool group of the older kids, which included Big Benjamin and my bigger brother. He was kind of in the cool group, but not quite. You know, they were, they were not really letting him in completely, but you had... Like Christopher and David and Big Benjamin and Adam, they were the really cool ones. And they, like, they would listen to Tom Waits and uh, they would find all this kind of edgy new music. They would drink, they would smoke, they would play poker, they would talk about girls, they would shoot fireworks at cars. And I was really intimidated by that. I was playing with Smurfs, Dungeons and Dragons. I was like Will Byers in Stranger Things. You know, I was that, that kid. And they all sat at this cool table, uh, the big cool table, and I did not have a seat at the big cool table. And as I was thinking about this sermon, I was just thinking, Jesus would say, little Benjamin, you come sit right up here in this table. Like, this table is absolutely for you. Those kind of hierarchies that you grew up in are not my kingdom at all. That's not me at all. There's no cool or average or uncool. We're all, we're all equally acceptable to Christ. Um, some of you were here a couple weeks ago, and my, my dad, I mentioned this. I always hesitate with personal things like, um, like this. Uh, but my dad, he came two weeks ago, and uh, he, he, was, he was brought up this aisle right here by my brother Peter in a wheelchair. And uh, he took communion for the first time in his life. It was... Like, it was mind-blowing to me. I, I still haven't really processed it emotionally, I don't think. It was, it was definitely a spirit thing. And I tell the story to say, just as God coordinated 
Cornelius and Peter, you know, interacting in their families through the Holy Spirit. This thing was synchronized from heaven. What happened with my dad? Because my mom texted me on the Wednesday before he took communion. This out of the blue text. It just said, based on the criteria that you use to fence the Lord's Supper, I think your dad is probably ready to take the Lord's Supper. And that blew me away. I'd never heard anything like that in my life about my dad. He was really stubborn. I mean, I got my atheism from him when I was in college. And, um, and so I was like, I've got to get over to the house and hear what this, because he kind of has a little bit of dementia. So I was like, maybe this is just my mom pushing for something at the end of his life. He's really old. He's about to die. So I went to talk to him at the house. And he said, uh, I am tired of fighting my doubts. And I don't understand what this is, but I want it. I want it. So I was like, well, then I'll give it to you because that's, that's all you need. And, uh, and that day, he barely made it to church. Barely. I mean, he was so bad that morning. My mom said, this is just not going to happen. And she didn't know if it would ever happen. But she got him here. And then Peter came. And he took him down the aisle. And right before my dad came down the aisle and I served him. And when I served him, I gave him the bread and he just ate it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to just give him the bread and dip it and then give it to him. And so he ate he got it twice. But um, before he got down here, there was one of you uh, came down and was shaking and, and kind of crying. And they said, um, last week when you were preaching, I prayed. They were sitting right there and they were praying. They saw my dad was staring at me while I was preaching. And they're like, I prayed for your dad the entire sermon. I did not know why. And I was going to text you all week because it was so crazy that God was leading me to do I've never done anything like that, but I just prayed from the whole sermon. And when I heard that, I just realized this was a spirit thing. This was not my mom pushing my dad. I was not pushing my dad. My brother wasn't even pushing my dad primarily. It was the spirit that was pushing him. <laughs> and I asked him a few days after that when he was in the hospital, uh, and he barely even remembered that it happened. I was like, okay, so, you know, I don't know how much he knows. Uh, I would probably doubt to this day that it was real, except that that thing happened where the spirit clearly showed that he was doing it. But it made me realize, like, God has no favorites. And if you come in, like, at the 11th hour and you barely believe at all, like, if you just kind of say, remember me, Lord, when you enter your kingdom... You're dying on a cross with Jesus. You're a thief. You're a murderer. Jesus said, I, I guarantee you with me today that uh, you will be with me in paradise, he says to the thief on the cross. And so uh, Jesus says, you know, you barely believe. You're a traitor. You know, you, you hate me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still offer my life for you, which is what this meal is all about. This is the meal of, of no partiality. Remember, we love these rascals.